If you have your Bibles, would you join me in Luke chapter 12? It's been several weeks since we have been in our study of Luke 12, but I want to remind you of the scene in which Jesus is teaching as we arrive at these verses that we're going to study this morning. Jesus has just been to dinner in the home of a Pharisee. In that dinner, Jesus has been very confrontational with the religionists. And in his confrontational ways, he has addressed what is, in effect, how they line their pockets, how they have amassed their wealth. Within that dinner, the mood turns and the Pharisees and the lawyers begin to be angry with Jesus and a heated tone exists. Now, certainly Jesus is not afraid of what they can do to him. And as the dinner concludes, Jesus steps out of the house with the Pharisees and the lawyers at his back and a massive crowd of people has assembled. We're told the crowd of people is so large that they are trampling each other. As far as the eye can see are heads and bodies down every alley and along every street. In the midst of that massive crowd of people are the disciples and certainly some other believers. And Jesus raises his voice and begins to address his disciples and those few believers that are in the crowd. And he says bravely, incredibly courageously beware of hypocrisy in effect to this mob of people he says don't be like these pharisees behind me be real as jesus pauses in his discourse one interrupts him with a question and wants jesus to mediate his family's inheritance jesus of course brushes that aside He's not here, in effect, to mediate these legal matters, but rather, Jesus tells a story about covetousness. He talks about a farmer who stores up everything in his barns, imagining that he has a long life ahead of him, and the question is, you fool, tonight your life will be required of you, then whose will these things be? Jesus knows that his followers are concerned. He knows that the disciples are worried. And so Jesus addresses them and he says, don't you grasp that there is more to life than what you can see? Concern, anxiety, fret and worry has never put one more bite of food in your belly or one more stitch of clothing on your back. But if you look to God and consider the ravens and consider the lilies, it will take your worry and concern away, rest, Jesus would say, on him. Now, as we arrive at these verses this morning, Jesus is going to make an audacious statement. He's going to communicate a mandate about our heart condition. And it is important that we grasp the tone in which Jesus is speaking. If you look in verse 32, continuing this same discourse, in this same setting, Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that ye have, and give alms. Provide yourselves 
bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus was a master teacher. Jesus knew how to get our attention. And when Jesus used the word treasure, he communicated something that is based to every one of us. He knew that we cherished. He's communicating the idea of a treasure that we can attain. He's articulating the reality of a hidden treasure as it were. Every human being that includes us has some natural curiosity, has some piqued interest about the possibility of instant wealth, about the possibility of buried treasure. It's so natural to us. Why? Because what is natural to us is a love of money, a desire for wealth. We like the idea that we may unearth some instant wealth scheme. That's why the lottery is so addictive to people. In fact, statistics say it is the poorest among us that play the lottery the most. I found it interesting in California, a study revealed that 40% of lottery players are unemployed. Just trying to strike it rich. In the state of Maryland, one-third of the population buys 60% of the daily tickets that are sold. An economics professor and lottery expert, I didn't even know there was such a thing, but lottery, I wonder if he wins. He's after all a lottery expert. Says that after three to five years, many people stop playing the lottery because they can no longer afford it. And the reality is you have about a one in 54 million chance of hitting on it. I studied this out. You actually have a one in three million chance of freezing to death. That's just most Sundays in this auditorium. You have a one in two million chance of being struck by lightning. You have a one in one million chance of dying in the bathtub, which sounds horrible and completely undignified. You have a one in 700,000 chance of being killed by a dog. I don't take chances. If I come to see you at your home, put your dog away. I don't want to pet your dog. I don't like your dog. I don't want your dog to like me. Or know me or I to know your dog. Is that clear enough? Say, I don't like you anymore. I get it. We were on thin ice to begin with. You have a 1 in 86,000 chance of dying from poisoning. If you eat my cooking, it's like a 1 in 5. 1 in 5. Why is it that we would roll the dice, that we would participate in something that is so outrageously unrealistic to happen to us because innately we desire this quick get rich scheme instant wealth we imagine that amassing wealth will bring us fulfillment and will offer us happiness it's a battle that rages inside of all of us we live with a tension between the goal of honoring God and the greed that is so naturally a part of our makeup. Right in that gap, Cyprian wrote with frustration these words describing the Christians of his generation. He said, Their possessions hold them in chains, 
Chains which shackle their courage and choke their faith and hamper their judgment and throttle their souls. They think of themselves as owners. Whereas it is they rather who are owned. They rather who are enslaved to their own things. They are not the master of their money, but rather it's slaves. This is exactly what Jesus is addressing. This is incredible, eternal, financial advice from Jesus. Now I want to be very careful to communicate. Jesus, as he teaches this, is not against wealth. In fact, he gives rain and sun on the just and the unjust, and he prospers men and women according to his plan and sovereign will. God does not despise things for us. What he is communicating, and the tent pole of this, is the heart condition where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Do you hold your things, or do your things hold you? The tension between the goal of honoring God and the greed that can dominate us, that is what Jesus is striking at. The main question is not how much do you have, but where is your heart? And we might imagine that when Jesus begins to ask for some generous gift or a change in our lifestyle or heart set, that harshly he would deliver a mandate. But note that he begins with words of comfort. He says in verse 32, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is the only place in the New Testament where the term little flock is used for believers. I think that it is in, in a way, Jesus communicating how outnumbered everyone feels at this precise moment in his discourse. He knows they're worried. He knows it's an uphill battle. He knows that to follow him is countercultural. And he says to them, fear not, little flock. He doesn't say to them, fear not, because they're not afraid. He tells them to fear not, because in that moment, he who knows everything grasps that they are worried. Little flock, he says. That's somewhat humbling. Jesus does not say, fear not, courageous leaders. He does not say, fear not, great men of faith. He's already told them back in verse 22 to stop worrying. And now he says to them, I grasp that you are nothing more than defenseless animals in need of a shepherd. Don't be afraid, little flock. I'm here. Jesus takes great pains to use words specifically to form our view of God in heaven. This is all intentional. Jesus is standing like a lone mountain with the religionists who despise him and ultimately will turn him over to Rome for execution at his back. A mass of people in front of him who are trying to figure out who he is. Some have rejected. Some have received. Jesus, like a lone mountain, fearlessly says to his followers, I grasp that you have some concerns. But I'm telling you, don't be afraid. And then he says to them, your father, 
He makes us intentionally see God in heaven as relating to us like a father. He's forming how we see God. And then he uses this term. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In the Greek, it is his good pleasure means it is to be a pleasure. He is pleased by. You could understand it. This pleases God. He chooses it gladly. If you go to Chick-fil-A and they hand you something, what do they say when you say thank you? They say, my pleasure. This happened in the first service. Everybody acts like we don't eat fast food. We're all incredibly fit. No, you're not. I have eyes. My pleasure. Now, they may not mean that, but what we're hearing here in Luke 12 from the mouth of Jesus is your Father in heaven is pleased. It brings Him joy. It is the fulfillment of His desire. It is His wish. It is His hope to give you and me the kingdom of God. That is a stunning statement. We're joint heirs with Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father. And God, the Father, does not despise, nor does He begrudgingly give unto us the inheritance that we share with Christ. But rather, it is His pleasure to give to us the kingdom. Why is the call of the gospel universal? Why is the mandate for us to go to the whole world and share the gospel with all the lost? Because God is pleased to give the kingdom to believers. And the only way to access the kingdom is the gospel way. Jesus is forming how we view God. It's His joy, desire, want, wish, hope, pleasure, gladness, delight to give the kingdom to His flock. And the language intimates that it is already ours. We're already recipients of the kingdom. We've already received the inheritance. We are in Christ. God is everywhere. But He is not bound by time. He's not only everywhere, He's every when. This story is already complete where God is. My inheritance, First Peter tells me, is reserved for me under lock and key. It will not spoil. It will not fade. It is incorruptible. It is as good as mine. So the implication here is whether you and I go through this life worried or not is on us, not on him. Because it is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom of heaven he already has. Why do we concern ourselves with temporal matters so greatly? Your father is pleased to give you this. Don't be afraid, little flock. He doesn't say it is your father's good pleasure to sell you the kingdom. He does not say it is your father's good pleasure to trade with you and barter with you for the kingdom. He's giving. It's generous. He's pleased to do it. In here we grasp what our heart set should be towards giving. Now what Jesus does next is striking. He has toned down the scene. He has articulated our relationship with God. He is our Father. He has communicated He's pleased to give us the kingdom, to 
give us our inheritance. And then he says this in verse 33, right in the first part, sell that ye have and give alms. After telling us that our Father is pleased to give us the kingdom, he turns it and he says to us, now you, my little flock who is concerned, sell what you have and give alms. He says, give generously. Now be careful. The Lord doesn't say here, sell all of your possessions and give everything that you have to the needy. He is directly contrasting in this segment of verses the foolish farmer from earlier. Which is why every sermon should be four hours long so that we can stay right in the context because you've forgotten the foolish farmer who stored up imagining that he would always have access to his goods only to die that night and the question rings out, then whose will these things be? Well, they can't be mine. I'm leaving them here. That's why he is deemed a fool. And in direct contrast to the foolish farmer who stored up everything that he could not ultimately use, Jesus says, now you believers, my little flock, don't live like that, but rather give generously of your resources. Sell what you have and give alms. In a term we hang loosely to this world's goods. One pastor said very practically, be ready to give away. What you really don't need to missionaries in another country or a family in need that you hear about. Give some of your time. Join one of the teams of the volunteers that are needed within the church. Give generously. That's what Jesus is saying. Sell what you have and give alms. Hang loosely to this world's goods. That does not come natural to us. We cling to this world's possessions selfishly. It starts when we are children. No one has to teach little babies to hold on to their toys. They do not naturally want to share. Naturally, they want to fight over the dumbest and most trivial items, which is probably how God views us. Literally intimated in the language is, hey, I'm not saying it's wrong to have barns and have possessions. What I am saying Jesus would communicate is, hold on to them loosely. Don't grip them like they are your identity. Don't hold to them like they are your fulfillment and happiness. Hold on to them loosely. The disciples are on the road here with Jesus. The disciples are no doubt looking at each other at this moment in time. Sell what you have and give alms. Sell what you have and give alms. I don't have anything to sell. Already in Luke 9, Jesus said unto them, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Jesus had left his trade behind. Jesus was raised in the home of a carpenter, no doubt. He had picked up those skills. Those were marketable skills. Jesus had left that behind and of his own admission doesn't even have a place to sleep. Many times, did not know where the next meal was coming from. 
That passed on to the disciples as they were in the boat. Jesus begins to address them. They think that he's upset with them because they don't have anything to eat for lunch. They're just like us. The disciples have, Peter, James, and John, walked away from their fishing gear, walked away from their boats to follow Jesus. We see as Jesus comes out of the synagogue in Capernaum and calls Matthew the publican unto himself, that he leaves his table of receipts, walks away from it, and follows Jesus. These guys are on the road with Jesus. They don't have much to sell. And yet, he audaciously says to them, sell what you have and to give it away. Their giving away of virtually everything they had has at this point liberated them to follow Jesus everywhere he goes. These are not wealthy people and still he says, sell what you have. Jesus, again, is after the heart. He's saying, move towards simplification, not towards accumulation. This is heaven's view of things. Divest yourself. Treasure God more than you treasure these worldly things. Give generously. That's the mindset. Now you have to see it right in the verse. Jesus' mandate to sell and to give comes right after he has just said, your father generously gives unto you the kingdom of heaven. Your gift, no matter how large, pales in comparison to what he has given us. This is the setting, this is the context of Jesus' communication. Now what he will do is extremely practical. Jesus is looking at very poor people, and he's telling them to sell and to give. And then he uses a word that is of utmost importance. He uses the word provide. Note in verse 33, in the second phrase, third phrase in, he says, provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus is using an analogy. If you were to go to the marketplace, a merchant would be wearing a money belt. How many of you remember the little change belts where they could rip off Exact change. How many of you remember using cash? Anyone? Anyone remember using, getting change using cash? Anyone? The depiction is this man with his money belt has a pouch where he takes his money and he sticks it into it. And Jesus is saying now this man's money bag has aged and it's weathered and it's thinned and it's not what it once was. It has holes in it. So as this man takes money in and sticks it into his money bag, it falls out of the money bag and it's wasted. Somebody else picks it up. He's saying, listen, this earth is like an old money bag. You put money in and it just works its way through and it falls out the other side. These temporal things don't last. I took my car to get it inspected several months ago. It was one of my least favorite things to do in the calendar year. I don't know why I hate it, but man, do I hate it. Probably here's why I hate it. When I took it in, I said to the service advisor, I said, hey, while you're inspecting it, my keyless entry is no longer opening my driver's door. I have to stand there and I have to take the key out of this fob, which requires three hands and teeth to get in there. 
to put the thing in. And I said, would you take a look at that while it's in there? He said, oh, yeah, Mr. Edwards, we'll take a look at that. Thank you. Later in the day, I come back, pick it up. It's past inspection. He says, you know your tires are getting close to needing replaced. I did not ask you to look at my tires, sir, but thank you. I said, did you take a look at the lock problem? He said, yes, we did. I said, did you solve it? He said, no, we didn't. I said, well, what's the issue? He said, you need lock actuators. Okay, sounds like you're just trying to sound smart to me, sir, and they sound expensive. How many do I need? You need two, one in the driver's door, one in the passenger door. All right, what's a lock actuator? It's $710, Mr. Edwards. A piece? Great. I said, does that cover all of it? Oh, no, no. There's labor on top of that. We've got to dismantle the whole door. We need your car for two and a half months, three months. You're just going to need to buy a new car. You need lock actuators. Now, if you see me walk to my car, you know what you're going to see me do? Fighting the key out of the key fob. I got two kids in college, man. I'm going to wait on door actuators for a minute. What Jesus is communicating is lived out in that little scenario. I purchase this earthly possession which I have to have to navigate life. And yet this world's goods are like sticking money into a bag with holes in it. It's going to need tires. It's going to need brakes. It needs door actuators. And Jesus is saying, stop holding so tightly to these trifling things which will not last Give generously, and by giving generously, you will maximize eternity. He says, provide yourselves bags which will not wax old. Bags in eternity which don't have holes in them. Bags in eternity, store up your treasures in heaven. There are no moths there that are going to break through and eat up those expensive garments. There's no rust there that is going to... diminish the value of your items. There's no thief there that is going to break through and steal. Invest in eternity. Maximize forever. I love what one wrote here. Jesus isn't putting in a plug for donors. Don't think that God is poor. God isn't looking for donors. He's looking for partners. Investors who have a vision for eternal treasures. Jesus makes it clear that your heart moves toward what you cherish and God wants you to move towards Him. The word treasure simply communicates the object that is cherished. Heart is the organ that does the cherishing. He does not say, put your heart in heaven and then move your treasure there. He says, put your treasure there and what you will find is the object that is cherished will draw the organ that does the cherishing. Who has your heart? Do you hold loosely or do you selfishly hold on? It is so important what Jesus is teaching. Jesus said in Luke 16, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. You can't do it. It's one or it's the other. Jesus' words here in Luke 12 are mirrored in Matthew 6. 
Matthew 6, we read, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal, but rather, in effect, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He gives us a very quick don't and do list. Don't lay up treasures here on earth. Don't lay up treasures here on earth, not because treasures on earth are bad, rather because they will not last. One preacher said this, it was very reverent and deep. He said, storing up earthly treasures isn't simply wrong, it's just plain stupid. I don't like being talked to like that. Straight talk, it's just plain stupid. Solomon says in Proverbs 23, 5, Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, an incredibly affluent and accomplished man, takes a look at all of his works, and one of the things that frustrates his soul is this, some joker is going to come behind me and live in this house, and somebody's going to come behind me and sit on that throne, and somebody's going to come behind me and oversee these works, and they will not have invested in any of it. Oh, life is vain, Solomon says. How empty is that? All of life without God is emptiness. Stuff is not bad. What is the stuff doing to our heart? Don't lay up treasure on earth, but rather lay up treasure in heaven. It's the best investment advice you'll ever hear. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Do you hear the personal pronouns that are used in there? Lay up for yourselves. God is glorified when we trust him by giving. But God is also into rewarding us personally. Luke 12, 33, as I read, Sell that ye have and give alms. Provide yourselves bags. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6.19, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. Peter, speaking of our inheritance in 1 Peter 1.4 said, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you and for me. That's why when Jesus sat in the temple treasury courtyard and he watched the Pharisees come in with great fanfare and drop tons of change down into those fluted metal trumpets so that everybody could hear how much money they gave, Jesus grabs his disciples' attention. He says, hey, 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 look at this. Look at that woman. A little woman sneaks up as quietly as can be and drops two mites down in there. And the Pharisees would have laughed. And the culture would have said it doesn't matter. Jesus grabbed his disciples and said, I want you to see that. Because what you see there is incredible generosity. You'd say, well, yeah, it's easy to give two mites. It's brutally hard when that's all that you have. But not one of us thinks that woman didn't have food later in the day. Not one of us thinks that woman's bills went unpaid. Jesus saw what she gave and he rewarded her. That's what Jesus does. That's why it sticks out to us when the Box of ointment is broken on Jesus and Judas looks and he says, what a waste. 
that you would give such an extravagant gift. We could have sold that and given that to the poor. Isn't that what you said to do, Jesus? Now, he was a complete hypocrite, and they let us in. He didn't want to give it to the poor. He wanted to line his own pockets. Sometimes when you audaciously and generously give, it's nonsensical to other people, but not to Jesus. Simply put, he is driving this idea of deferred gratification. If I said to you, on your way out today, we're going to give each of you $1,000 that attended. However, if you forego the $1,000 and you come back again next Sunday on your way out the door, we're going to give you $100 million as you leave. Number one, we'd have 100% perfect attendance next week. Number two, no one on the way out except maybe two and three-year-olds would take the 1000 bucks. Everybody would say, I've got it. I'm not going to work Monday or Tuesday. I'm not even coming to church Wednesday. Don't need to. I'm going to quit publicly on Thursday. I'm going to nap all day Friday. I'm coming next Sunday for that $100 million. In effect, what Jesus is saying to us is this. I hath not seen, nor has ear ever heard, what he has prepared for us as believers. Now, our finite mind struggles with that because we think in terms of markets and dollars and cents and possessions, economies. But God is saying, what I have prepared will vastly blow away in extravagance and opulence your wildest imagination. You can't even conjure up what he has prepared and yet selfishly and foolishly and miserly will stick another bale in the barn. And will hold tightly when he says, if you would just let it go and start storing up and maximizing eternity, you will find that I'm blessing you. You say, now I find it quite strange that this is the Sunday before Victory Sunday in Luke 12. Is there a point? Maybe. But we did start Luke 12 many weeks ago. I may actually plan sermons out, contrary to what people think. Sure, this hits this weekend. I think to myself, you know, an extra thousand bucks. An extra thousand bucks. Well, what I, what I know is it doesn't do door actuators. But what could God do with an extra thousand bucks? About an extra 500 bucks. Well, 500 bucks. I mean, after all, 500 bucks. Be honest. Barely gets you through Publix or Harris Teeter anymore. And none of us go to Target anymore. So, (laughs) extra 200 bucks? Extra 100 bucks? Start thinking about what Jesus is saying. It says, I send sun and rain on the just and on the unjust. I prosper men according to my sovereign will. If you have it, it's because I've been good to you, God says. And how audacious is it in this setting for Jesus, like a lone mountain of courage, to look out at his disciples and say, Fear not, little flock. I know your concerns. I know you can sense they hate me. I know you sense that we are outnumbered. I know it's an uphill cultural climb to follow me. But I say to you, it is your Father in heaven who is pleased to give you the kingdom. It's already yours. Stop fretting your way through this life and miserly like a stingy old man squeezing every cent. Rather, generously give. Store up and maximize eternity. And that deferred gratification when you get there will blow you away. 
And you say, so you want us to give on Victory Sunday? No, but yes. God does. We're not giving to an empire. We're not giving to a cause. We're not giving to a man. As we purpose in our hearts, according to the leading of the Holy Spirit, we give. And God does something with it. He said, well, what I have isn't a lot. That's okay. Neither were a few loaves of bread and a couple fish, but Jesus can do something with it. Neither is a little bit of cruise and a little bit of flour, but God can prolong it and he can multiply it. I'm just saying, as Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The question is, where is your heart? Where is my heart? And I struggle with this. It is the tension between the goal of honoring God and the greed that is naturally a part of who I am. I'm not saying, and there's ample scripture to communicate stewardship and financial planning and wise use of money and passing along an inheritance to children. That is all within scripture. I'm not driving after what you own. I'm after your heart. That's what Jesus is communicating. Do you hold your things or do your things hold you? That's what it's about. Be generous. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.